1960, John F. Kennedy announced his candidacy for the Democratic presidential nomination. The Aswan Dam began construction in Egypt, France tested a nuclear bomb in Algeria, and the United States announced that yet more U.S. soldiers would be sent to Vietnam. President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act. The Belgian Congo received its independence from Belgium. Niger became independent from France. And Typhoon Mary killed 1,600 people in China. Adolf Eichmann, one of many Nazi war criminals living and hiding in Buenos Aires, was kidnapped by four Mossad agents and brought to Israel for trial. And that same year, Gidon Lev reported for duty in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. These are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. Israel has a conscription army, which means that all citizens, male or female, are obligated to serve starting at the age of 18. Three years for men, two years for women. Not all soldiers are in combat units. As with any army, there is a plethora of other duties to fulfill, ranging from intelligence to training, clerical support to transportation to coordination, as well as national service positions. There are exceptions made for Arab Israelis who are not obligated to serve, and there are Israelis who can refuse to serve for religious or other reasons, but they are few and far between. In Israel, there's a bit of a stigma around not serving, and indeed half the population in Israel has served in the military in one function or another. After their regular service is over, Israelis are then part of the reserves, milouim in Hebrew, and must be available for emergency call-up, and barring that, must serve 36 days each year until the age of 45. Up until 1986, the age was 54. The downward shift is a reflection of both the shifting nature of warfare and the increased population in Israel. Currently, there is an intense debate in Israel about whether the Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, should be required to serve. More and more, Haredi Israelis do serve, but a large portion of them believe they should not have to because they instead serve Israel through prayer and study. This does not go over well with the general public. Israel's army isn't the largest or most powerful in the world, but it is considered the world's most agile and experienced, and with good reason. Since the IDF was created in 1948 from a group of smaller militias, It has engaged in more than 23 major operations. The Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service, equivalent to the CIA in the United States, is one of the most respected and feared intelligence agencies in the world. A first-time visitor to Israel might be a bit taken aback to see soldiers with submachine guns slung over their shoulders, casually walking down the street or on the bus, at the mall, or in cafes. It took me a while after moving here to realize that this wasn't because these soldiers were guarding the train or the cafe or that some kind of danger was imminent, but rather because these soldiers were en route from their base to their home or vice versa. Israel's a small country and army bases, large and small, are a common sight. There's a base not far from where Gidon and I live, in fact, and it isn't unusual for us to overhear shouts and singing drifting over the rooftops. If the kibbutz movement was one major influence on the culture, outlook, and personality of Israelis, the IDF was another. Though Dan Sinor and Saul Singer's seminal book, Startup Nation, the story of Israel's economic miracle, is primarily about technological innovation and its attendant economic impact on the region, the book also points to the IDF's considerable impact on Israeli culture. 
Sebastian Junger writes in Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging, quote, Israel is arguably the only modern country that retains a sufficient sense of community to mitigate the effects of combat on a mass scale, end quote. Because Israel has existed with the backdrop of war and conflict on and across its borders since 1948, cooperation, swift decisions, less formal social hierarchy, questioning authority, and what Israelis call kambina, making do with what is at hand, have imbued themselves into the Israeli personality. Israel's social resiliency, which is a measure of how well a society copes with stress and even hardship, is thusly elevated. The social glue, if you will, is quite palpable in Israel. It's the ongoing conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, yes, but it's also due to the size of the country. When it's night in Israel, it's night for everyone. When it's hot in Israel, it's hot for everyone. When the country is under attack, everybody must deal with it. Israelis cannot hold one another at arm's length. They don't have the luxury. At its narrowest point, the country is nine miles wide. Imagine that. The military is very much woven into everyday life, and its ethos is deeply embedded in Israeli society. Thus, when it came time for Gidon to show up for duty, he jumped right in for all it was worth. Luckily for him, he was part of the Nahal unit, which had been established in 1948 to allow kibbutz members to serve in cohesive units and combine military service with farming. The Nahal had another objective, which is to ensure the kibbutzim were protected by trained soldiers on all of Israel's borders. At the advanced age of 25, I found myself at the Nahal boot camp, called Base 80, in an area about 35 kilometers south of Azorea, and almost totally planted with citrus groves, the smell of which penetrated the camp. The Nachal Battalion was almost entirely made up of young people, boys and girls from the various youth movements and the kibbutzim, plus groups from the Israeli scout movement. It was somewhat bewildering for me, of course. Everything we did had to be done to perfection, and in a specific time. For me personally, this was not so hard, but there were others who could not cope, and we quickly learned that it is to our advantage to help them whether that be making their cots, filling their water canteens to the top with water, or other responsibilities. Punishments were dished out not so much to the individual, but rather to the entire squad or tent. There were ten of us in each tent. Together with all that, we received four hours of Hebrew lessons for the first three weeks, given by mostly pretty female army teachers. For me, this was wonderful, because it really helped me to start speaking and reading this new language. And besides, it was sitting in a class instead of running, crawling, and doing drills. One of the crucial activities from the first day on the base was running. We did this in platoons, each platoon numbering about 35 to 40 recruits, and we needed to help those that had a hard time and lagged behind. Sometimes we literally had to carry those that were just too exhausted. I very quickly learned that I would do the best if I stuck up front, close to the commander that led the troops. As our stamina increased, we all started singing all kinds of songs, 
And I taught my platoon the song, Michael, row your boat ashore, with me or someone else calling out the words and the rest answering, Hallelujah! Michael, row your boat ashore, Hallelujah! Michael, row your boat ashore, Hallelujah! Meet my friend on the other side, Hallelujah! Beat my friend on the other side, and this is not good. <laughs> It's lovely. <laughs> By the end of the three months basic training, the entire base was singing the song, which really made me happy. It was my little contribution to this macabre way of living. In my tent and platoon, most of the boys were Brazilians, from kibbutz Givat Oz, about 10 kilometers east of Hazorea and on the very border of the West Bank, at that time ruled by Jordan and the Jordanian army. Jenin was the closest Arab city over the border. Givat Oz was a kibbutz first settled by Hungarian Holocaust survivors and now had been joined by a large group from Brazil. Most of them spoke little Hebrew, but a lot of Portuguese. Over three months, I picked up a few Portuguese words. In general, peace reigned in the area. When there was infiltration by the Palestinians, it was mainly to steal equipment, livestock, or produce grown in our fields. These cross-border infiltrations began in the 1950s and were conducted by what is called Fedayin, Arab guerrilla fighters organized into and sponsored by several factions. The earliest Fedayin were primarily mercenary, but ultimately banded together to push for a Palestinian state by whatever means necessary. The early beginnings of these raids were largely tit-for-tat, but the movement began to evolve significantly in the 1960s toward Palestinian nationalism. Guidon's two-and-a-half-year period of service from 1960 to midway through 1963 was just ahead of this wave. One of the most significant events in basic training was, of course, receiving our rifle, which was the FN-556 caliber, a Belgian-made weapon. It was not too heavy, had a light kickback, and we learned to clean, take apart, put it back together in record time. By the time we finished our training, we could do it with blindfolded eyes. The rifle became an integral part of our body. We walked with it no matter where we went, to the loo, to breakfast, to any and all activities, including, of course, running. We slept with our rifles, and it was never ever farther away from us than one step. Each gun has a serial number, and we learned it by heart. And since all the rifles were the same, we devised ways of identifying our personal weapon. I had brought a bit of black tape from Hazoea and used it to mark my weapon. We spent hours cleaning it, and if during the daily morning inspection the slightest speck of dirt was found, it meant no after-lunch rest, because there would be another inspection just before going out to the afternoon training, and more cleaning to be done. There were times I recalled that I felt hopeless and frustrated, as did many of us. When basic training ended, we were new soldiers in the Israel Defense Forces. We had overcome many hardships, learned to camouflage ourselves in minutes, dig personal trenches, crawl, 
shoot by day or night, walk silently and with utmost caution during night patrols, keep our personal weapon clean and ready at a moment's notice, and most importantly, appreciate each other's strengths and know each other's weaknesses. Each squad, seven soldiers and commander, was like a close family. We really felt ready to defend ourselves with a great deal of confidence and motivation. By the end of boot camp, 16 or so soldiers were selected to continue training for the next level, to become squad commanders, and I was one of them. For me, this was a bit of a surprise. I hadn't expected it. I didn't think I was that good, but my commander thought otherwise. I was quite happy about this additional challenge. given a week's rest and sent home to our respective kibbutzim, which was really great, to rest, have good food, and no pressure. What else could I want? Maybe a girlfriend. It was hard to go back to the strict and rigorous army discipline, but on Shabbat evening, I got all my gear together, and Sunday at 5 a.m., I was on my way to Be'er Sheva, our southern city on the edge of the great Negev desert. A couple of army trucks awaited to transport us and our duffel bags to an isolated base near the ancient Nabatean city of Shifta, very close to the Egyptian border post called Nitzana. We received the commander's weapon, an Israeli-produced submachine gun called Uzi 9mm, and learned to use other weapons, did countless push-ups, and ran daily. We learned topography, first in the classrooms, and then out in the desert on foot. In small groups of three to four, we were given a map and coordinates, and sent out into the vast wilderness of the Negev to find what we were assigned, describe it, and return to base. The longer it took us, the less sleep we got. Sometimes we would go out at 7 in the evening and get back only at 2 or 3 in the morning, and by 5.30 a.m. we were back up again. We trudged through the endless desert sand dunes for hours and hours, and looking back on it today, I don't know how I survived at times. After that, all those who volunteered for the parachute unit left the base, and the rest of us were giving new assignments to various units all over the country. I was quite happy to be sent to a platoon in the north on the Lebanese border to Kibbutz Iftach as the second in command. The detachment was commanded by a sergeant by the name of Yoyo, a very amiable and easygoing guy who had another three months to go before his release from the army. The entire platoon, both male and female, was a group made up of Tzofim, the Israeli scouts movement, and they were a great bunch of people. This border at the time was quiet and peaceful. We could walk all the way to the border post that separates Lebanon from Israel without any fear or much hesitation. We could see the Hermon mountain and its snow-capped peak, the highest in the region. We worked, did guard duty at night, and had a very rich cultural life, which was greatly appreciated by the members of the kibbutz. They were very short of manpower, 
and our 35 or so platoon contingent made a serious contribution to all aspects of kibbutz life. For the first time in my life in Israel, I saw and tasted the wonderful Macintosh apples that the kibbutz was growing in their huge orchard. We were known as Nachal Unit 902, and we were spread out over about 10 different kibbutzim on the border throughout the north. The Syrian border was the most problematic because from time to time, snipers would shoot at us or artillery would lob mortars down on us from the Golan Heights. Gidon had gotten pretty long-winded about his army experiences. You can read more details in our book. Suffice to say, Gidon had run, guarded, crawled, lugged, carted, sweated, mapped, slept, and bushwhacked over most parts of this country of Israel. In February of 2022, Gidon and I visited the Golan Heights. I was curious if the visit would bring back memories for him. This is a chilly... February morning on the Golan Heights, 2022. And it brings back many, many more memories. Because for most of my years as a reserve soldier, every year I was stationed up here on the Golan Heights, guarding against Syrian encroachment and Syrian attacks. One time in my... Day reserve duty yearly. I remember that I was asked to drive the truck that brought water to the various positions on the border, and the driver who was usually doing it was sick, so I volunteered and did it. And it was a fasc- fascinating experience because I got to see all the positions on the Golan Heights from the north of the Hermon all the way down to uh, the uh, junction between Israel, Jordan and Syria. And it was very interesting. About what year was that, Gidon? This was in 1978, perhaps 79, I'm not sure. So after the 1973 Yom Kippur War, what was it like on the Golan Heights at that time? It was quiet, quiet, and we were digging in, and not to be surprised once again. It is time for us to have the talk about Hamatzav, or the situation, which is how Israelis refer to the, well, situation between Israelis and Palestinians. You may have seen news about this ongoing conflict on television, represented by images of a smoking crater where a building once stood, women keening and wailing, a burning bus surrounded by flashing lights and ambulances, a graffitied concrete barrier wall, or young Palestinian men wearing black-and-white checkered kafiyas hurling stones or Molotov cocktails at Israeli soldiers. You've probably seen footage of Israeli bulldozers tearing down Palestinian houses or Israeli tactical teams dressed in black busting down the door of a Palestinian home. 
Israel and its heartbreaking, seemingly unsolvable problems show up on television news with dismaying regularity. During the war between Israel and Hamas in 2014, Operation Suk Itan, Protective Edge, while air raid sirens wailed outside and missiles fell in Gaza, there was another war, but this one was online. My Facebook feed was filled with fusillades of angry words and memes showing Israelis as evil oppressors or of Palestinians as bloodthirsty terrorists. These divisive memes and posts were so intensely ugly and one-sided that I was shocked. I found myself bridling and feeling defensive. When I engaged and asked people questions about what they had posted, I was very often met with combative words, hostility, and accusations of either being a warmonger or a self-hating Jew. Those advocating for peace were anything but peaceful. What I found even more despairing was the dearth of knowledge about the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, paired with a conviction that weighing in was somehow necessary as some kind of armchair activism. I realized that while the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians is a famous or rather infamous one, many people don't know about the roots of the conflict and how we came to this pass. For Jews returning to the land of their ancestors, a land they never forgot or abandoned in their longings, was a historic inevitability. Throughout the centuries of exile, Jews continued to return to the land, though in small numbers. There was no Jewish identity and no Judaism without the land of Israel. Jews around the world felt indigenous to the land from which they had been expelled and to which they believed they would one day return. Zionism, a mechanism to make this dream come true, became a political movement as a response to rising violence against Jews, particularly in Russia in the late 19th century. The First World War lasted from 1914 to 1918 and caused the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which for centuries had ruled over countries that we today call Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, and parts of northern Syria and southern Iraq. After the war, the French and the British divided up the former Ottoman Empire with Britain controlling Mandatory Palestine, which was comprised of what is today Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. France controlled the remaining territories. After the devastation of the Holocaust, many of those now stateless Jewish refugees who managed to survive sought refuge in Mandatory Palestine. For Arabs, the Jews weren't returning but invading. They saw their historic role as denying an invader any part of the land they felt belonged to them in its entirety. We've seen occupiers come and go, they said, and the Jews, too, will come and one day be forced to leave. The British tried to maintain equilibrium over mandatory Palestine, but a sporadic guerrilla war with Arabs fighting Jews and Jews fighting the British forced their hand. They needed to cut their losses and extract themselves from an increasingly chaotic situation. Subsequently, the United Nations voted for a two-state partition plan in 1947, dividing mandatory Palestine between the Palestinians and the Israelis. The surrounding Arab nations refused to accept the international community's decision and, when Israel proclaimed its independence in 1948, declared war.
Israel galvanized, fought back, and took extra territory, which it later relinquished to the Arab countries. In 1967, as Arab countries once again attacked Israel with the intent to destroy it altogether, Israeli forces captured East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and the Sinai. This time, Israel decided to maintain control of the territories as security buffer zones, but has since returned the Sinai and uprooted its settlements and soldiers from Gaza. Over the decades, Palestinians developed a yearning for national identity, autonomy, and political cohesion. As they struggled to do this, desperation and anger rose, and some turned to spectacular violence and terror. Palestinians say that Israel expelled 700,000 Palestinians in the 1948 war. Israelis say that some were expelled during the fighting, but many fled. And Israelis note that the Arab world expelled almost one million Jews. Today, there are over a million Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, and almost no Jews left in the Arab world. Very many agreements on both sides were broken, promises were made, and betrayals and violence occurred over and over again. There have been ongoing clashes and intifadas, uprisings, ever since. This cycle has woven itself into a dense tapestry of distrust, injustice, and pain. Both sides, the Israelis and the Palestinians, have been acting out of a sense of justice and being faithful to their reading of history. They feel they have no other choice. Countries have collective narratives, stories about themselves that they relate over and over through national anthems, textbooks, art, culture, and history books. We tend to exalt the versions that reflect positively on us and skim over or simplify those that do not. In America, the prevailing narrative is one of rebellion. We dumped the goddamn British tea right in the Boston Harbor. Later, as cowboys and outlaws, we conquered the wild, wild west. Today in America, we're only beginning to come to terms with the enormous flaws in our history as we have been taught it. The history of Israel's War of Independence was as familiar to Gidon as the stories of the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, and Thanksgiving were to me. ...from the Holy Land. The British flag came down over Palestine and a war began. Amidst the rumblings of battle, the ceremonial ram's horn, the shofar, was heard. And after 2,000 years, Israel was reborn. You are listening to the hymn Hatikva, as it was broadcast from Tel Aviv just a few moments after the proclamation of Israel's independence. Once this tiny Jewish state was born, all the Arab states surrounding this ridiculous little sliver of land categorically and emphatically rejected it, even before Israel declared its independence. Instead, they opened five fronts with their armies. In the south, the Egyptians. In the east, the Jordanians. In the north, the Syrians and the Iraqi army set out to attack. And even in the northwest, the Lebanese set about to attack. The only border safe from attack was the Mediterranean Sea. 
into which the Arab armies, their leaders and generals planned to push us in. I think that the Arab armies, with their overwhelming manpower, arms, tanks and artillery, were sure that within days, perhaps weeks, there would be no talk of a Jewish state called Israel. And they had a good reason to believe so. They were exceptionally confident and arrogant, forgetting one major fact, which was that the Jews living at the time in Israel had nowhere to go. That would be the end of the dream of a Jewish state. And in that kind of a situation, each soldier, each house, each trench becomes an unconquerable bulwark. There were many instances where the commanders of the Arab armies used loudspeakers to tell the local Arab citizens to leave their homes and stay out of harm's way because they would come back. It is important to know that Israel had a very small army, mind you, well-trained, few arms, no tanks, hardly any artillery, and very limited amounts of ammunition. It was committed, it was determined, it fought fiercely. Its very existence was on the line. On top of all that, the minute hostilities commenced, the world called for an embargo on arms to the Middle East, which essentially affected Israel, but not the Arab nations fighting it. They were simply too large and spread out to enforce such a dictum on them. I am really proud of the fact that the only country that came to Israel's help was the country of my birth, Czechoslovakia. Clandestinely, by night and day, they flew in plane loads of Czech rifles, ammunition, and even some light machine guns to a small airport in the Jezreel Valley, so we could somehow defend ourselves. So yes, the Arab armies lost the war, but for us, it was a miracle. We held them at bay, we managed to push them back, and took control of much more territory than the UN had allocated to us in the first place. Perhaps had the Arab nations been prepared to meet and sign a peace agreement with us, much of the territory we captured would probably have been returned to them. But they were, and are, a proud people, and in that war they were humiliated and were not prepared to recognize us here in the Middle East. Mind you, we did sign peace agreements with two of our neighbors, Egypt and Jordan, thanks to Anwar Sadat of Egypt, Hussein of Jordan, and Begin and Rabin of Israel. However, we remain in deep conflict with our closest neighbors, the Palestinians, and that must be resolved, not just for them, the Palestinians, but also for us and our existence as a free democratic state of the Jewish people and all its citizens. I think it's important to note here that these are Gidon's experiences and Gidon's memories. For other points of view, please see the suggested reading list on our website. For Israelis, the 1948 War of Independence was like a miracle. And this impossibility, this unlikely and amazing outcome, whether it be divine or human, informs the Israeli identity today. 
a people who exist in a hostile world against all the odds. If the ideology of kibbutz and service in the army are two pillars that make up the Israeli identity, the third pillar is that Israel has to defend its existence every day. But what was a miracle for the Israelis was a Nakba for the Palestinians, a catastrophe. Palestinians have absorbed a different version of events, one from their perspective. A chronology of catastrophe, displacement, and victimhood is shared by the Palestinians and the Israelis in tragic ways that have strengthened and reaffirmed each narrative for decades. In his book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, Yossi Klein-Halevi writes, We need to challenge the stories we tell about each other, which have taken hold in our societies. We have imposed our worst historical nightmares on the other. To you, we are colonialists, crusaders, and to us, you are the latest genocidal army seeking to destroy the Jewish people. Can we instead see each other as two traumatized peoples, each clinging to the same sliver of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, neither of whom will find peace or justice until we make our peace with the other's claim to justice. Gidon had written very little about the tumultuous backdrop of Israel's history, conflict, culture, and politics, choosing instead to focus on his life. It wasn't that he didn't have opinions about these things, mind you, or experiences with them. He just hadn't focused on them. This, in retrospect, was something that Gidon wanted to change. It wasn't too late. Now is the season of our activism. Gidon and I found ourselves with several other people, mostly women, riding in the back of a tour van down a bumpy road in the West Bank. We were on our way to Kalkia to see one of the hundreds of checkpoints that laced through and around the West Bank. The tour was organized by Maxom Watch, Barrier Watch, a volunteer nonprofit group led by Israeli women who are peace activists with a mission to monitor activities, bear witness, and agitate for justice at checkpoints and in military courts in the West Bank. Maxom Watch also provides opportunities for Israelis and others to see for themselves the impact of the checkpoints at the barrier wall. The barrier wall wasn't always there. It was built during the Second Intifada, which began in September 2000 and lasted until 2005. The Palestinian Intifada, or uprising, took the form of suicide attacks on buses and in cafes, claiming the lives of more than 1,000 Israeli men, women, and children, as well as the lives of an estimated 3,000 to 4,000 Palestinians, both combatants and non-combatants. The senseless deaths on buses, in cafes, and at shopping malls were not the only consequence of a years-long wave of suicide bombers. It's called terrorism for a reason. Countless Israelis and Palestinians were traumatized, and some were maimed for life. The Second Intifada destroyed any shred of hope, trust, or empathy that Israelis had struggled to harbor. The Israel of Gidon's younger days did not have the checkpoints or barrier wall. 
To say that he was disillusioned that the Israel he had loved and been a part of building had erected military checkpoints is an understatement. Gidon had been busy raising a family and hadn't really taken the time to stop and consider the implications. But he had lived through the terror of the intifadas that took the lives of so many, including people he knew. He felt conflicted and deeply saddened. Later, he wrote about our experience. What I saw in the central part of the West Bank is sheer madness, debilitating, unfair, and in the end, self-destructive. The worst aspect of this situation is that it is, for the most part, demoralizing for our own soldiers, and that is self-destructive. I am old and have, I believe, done my part for the state of Israel, but my children and my grandchildren deserve better. A few weeks later, Gidon and I attended the Israeli-Palestinian memorial event in Tel Aviv, sponsored by Combatants for Peace. Side by side with more than 8,000 people, Gidon and I reveled in the emotional speeches and heartfelt calls for peace made by both Israelis and Palestinians. During a rally in Tel Aviv to memorialize the 1995 assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin by a far-right-wing Jewish settler, Gidon was front and center, proudly holding up a sign protesting Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu. He was activated all right. The pride and accomplishment Gidon felt about his role in helping to build Israel was earned honestly. But it was uncomfortable to consider the outcomes we live with today. So many things could have and should have been done differently. The question becomes, what can we do today to make things better? One day, Gidon and I drove past a giant billboard urging Israelis to cast their votes for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in the second election in less than a year. Politics in Israel were boiling over once again, and peace looked even further away than ever before. I'm going to write something on that, Gidon muttered darkly. I laughed. Two days later, a can of spray paint appeared on our dining room table. Gidon, you can't be serious. I imagined Gidon being bundled off to the police station. Then, a second later, I realized he would probably love that because then he could make an even bigger stink. At three o'clock in the morning, Gidon donned his Batman hoodie. Seriously, he has a hoodie with the Batman insignia on it. Took the can of spray paint and crept to the intersection with the billboard. The next morning, as Israelis hustled down the sidewalk heading to work and soldiers streamed by to a nearby base, I stood and gazed upon Gidon's handiwork. He'd crossed out one letter because of a misspelling, but his message was clear. Enough, Bibi. Go home. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. And don't forget to leave a review. If you'd like to read The True Adventures, it is available everywhere you buy books online. To learn more about Gidon Lev, go to www.thetrueadventures.com and be sure to follow Gidon on social media. Thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Mock and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Groom and Adi Goldstein. Toda Raba Eliran for being the voice of young Gidon. Special thanks to Yossi Klein-Halevi and Maxim Watch. To the city of Ramat Gan, 
Sorry about the billboard. <laughs>